was a really, really good job. Let's give them a hand again. And let's give a hand to all of our kids and all of the small group leaders who worked with them and who did such a great job. I'm going to ask uh, Ruth Ellen if she would come up. Ruth Ellen, these are for you, for all of your hard work. Ruth Ellen's our director for Kids at the Ridge. <laughs> and she worked hard to put all the uh, scripts together and the lighting cues and all of those uh, particular aspects. So thanks for that. And uh, we want to show our appreciation to you in that way. You guys did a great job. Well, uh, I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come at this time. And we will um, receive the offering. If you're new or visiting with us, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, if you're new or visiting, this is just our gift to you. Please don't feel obligated to participate in any way. Uh, this is for those who call Jericho Ridge home and who are a regular part of the vision and the mission that God has called us to uh, here in this community and also around uh, the world. So uh, this is a great opportunity for you to be with us this morning and get a little bit of a taste of that and how the kids participate in it and how uh, even for the kids it's no small task to pronounce things like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar and to be up on the stage with all the lights and the cameras clicking and all of that. So you guys did a really good job with those things. And I'm not sure for you what your thoughts or your perceptions of uh, this morning are, what you came uh, with in your mind. But in some ways, it wasn't a typical kid's Christmas program with the cutesy shepherds and the kids with those little tinsel halo-y things that fall down over their eyes and they bash each other over the head with. And So you might be kind of wondering to yourself, well, what in the world does a story from Daniel chapter 4 have to do with the story of Christmas? What in the world does Herod and the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream have to do with the story of Christmas? And it's a good question to be asking. And in this November uh, and December, we've actually been going through a lead-up series into our Christmas season uh, called Counterfeit Gods. And we've been looking at all of the different things that can sneak into our lives and good things that we can take and we can turn them into the greatest or most important thing in our life in ways that are not helpful. And so now as we're moving close to Christmas, only how many days left? Six days left till Christmas. We have our last one that was highlighted for us in the stories that the kids did this morning. And that is this unhealthy place that sometimes for some of us, control can come to occupy in our lives. And the title says that this is a story of two kings, but really it's actually the story of three kings. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Herod, and then the King of Kings, Jesus. And so part of the story of Christmas is to remind us of the fact that things are not always the way that they seem. I can remember one Christmas growing up begging my parents for a Casio F91W digital watch. I was desperate to have this watch. This, you may not believe it looking at it now, in its day, it was the multifunctional device, the all-in-one. It did everything except, you know, for make cell phone calls for you. But it, this was the technological item to have that particular Christmas. And there was a box under the tree as presents began to be put out and wrapped that I thought 
was about the right size and shape for a Casio F91W watch to be in. So, one night, I sneaked down, and I picked up the box under the tree, and I shook it. And I tried to figure out, is there a Casio F91W watch in here? And as I shook it, I was so disappointed because I knew the sound that it was making. Lego sounds were in that box. And I thought, that is it. And there was no other box that was the right size and shape for an F91W. So the big day came. I opened up all of my presents. I thought, maybe, maybe, maybe they pulled something else. Maybe they put it in like a bigger box that I would be surprised by. So I'd open up all of my presents except for the little Lego box. And I was getting really disappointed. So finally I thought, all right, I'll open up my Lego box and see what's inside of it. And there, nestled amongst random pieces of Lego, which my parents had borrowed from my collection and stuffed into the, into the box to throw me off the scent, I found my F91W digital watch. <laughs> I thought it was in a box of Lego. But at Christmas time, just a reminder, things are not always as they appear. And the same thing is true for the story of our three kings today. If you were to take our three kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Herod and King Jesus, and you were to rank them in order of historical importance, and you looked at just the sphere of control that they had and the shininess of their crown and all the really good king-type stuff, you would always, always, always put Nebuchadnezzar number one. Because Nebuchadnezzar in his day and time was a very, very, very important person. In fact, he was the most powerful person in the ancient world. If you look at where his kingdom stretched from, Iran, Iraq, all down into Egypt, down into Saudi Arabia, up into Turkey and parts of Europe, I mean, he was an extraordinarily powerful person. He controlled all of the wealth in this area, the major trade routes, all the people groups were under his control, and yet Nebuchadnezzar's selfish pride and his incredible desire to be acknowledged as number one resulted in God giving him a very powerful dream, or as the kids rightly pointed it out to us, more like a very harsh nightmare. And the kids read the story from Daniel chapter 4 where, Belteshe uh, where Nebuchadnezzar is forced out of his palace. And he's forced out of his palace to eat grass like a cow like the wild animals do. That's what it says in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 4, that he ate grass like a cow for seven seasons. He went from hero to zero, and he it goes from being the most powerful person in the ancient Near Eastern world to being an outcast from society and chewing his cud instantaneously. And he might have looked successful and powerful on the outside, but in his heart he had issues that God called him to account for. And it's a bit of a crazy story. So that's king number one, Nebuchadnezzar. Now king number two, if you were to ask, who in our story might the second most powerful king be, just from appearances, you would probably choose Herod. Now, uh, history records for Herod a little title to help us remember him, or that he wanted to help us remember him by. And he put this little moniker, because Herod was a very, very common name in his day and time. So he asked that he could be remembered for posterity's sake by the name Herod the Great, to distinguish him from the other Herods of his day and of his time. So Herod the Great 
actually wasn't that great, either as a person or, frankly, as a king. Really, if you stack him up against kings the like of Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't even really come close at all. First of all, he's a little puppet king. He has a little kingdom. Look at his rule compared to Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Very, very small, actually, compared to what Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of. Just one little part of what Nebuchadnezzar ruled over in his day and in his time. And his authority as a king, Herod doesn't even earn this. It's not by virtue of his birthright. It's not a family lineage. He's just put in charge by Rome, who is the big kahuna, and they're in charge during the time that Jesus is born. And they just say, oh, I don't know, let's choose this guy. Oh, let's choose Herod. We'll put him in charge. And he can be kind of our building manager. So he actually built a lot of stuff in and around Judea and around Jerusalem. Some of it was still around today. But really, Herod is not that great of a king. It's really not in terms of Nebuchadnezzar. And, but Herod, too, he had some control issues that he had to deal with. You heard from the kids the story of his interaction with the Magi that came from the east. So he hears them use the term king of the Jews and he freaks out. He is so insecure, his desire for control motivates him to deceive foreign dignitaries, to manipulate religious and civic leaders, and in the end, he's such a control freak that he desires that his kingdom is most threatened by a 22-year-old, 22-month-old baby in a little hamlet somewhere not that far away from him. He's so freaked out by this that in the end, it results in him ordering a brutal atrocity. atrocity. Herod may think that he's a king with some measure of authority, but can you imagine a king being threatened by a 22-month-old baby? So that's king number two, Herod. But as I mentioned earlier... We have a third king in our story, and that is the baby lying in a manger. And that's what makes Herod's response so pathetically comical in some ways. If you were to have stood there that day in Bethlehem at the manger, and you were to have been asked by an Ipsos Reed pollster or somebody said, hey, can you go on Survey Monk, Survey Monkey, and take a 10-question survey for me about king stuff? And if you were to have stood there and observe that scene unfolding before you. And you were asked to conduct a comparative analysis survey on kingship between Nebuchadnezzar, King Herod, and the baby lying in the manger. What would you have said? I mean, if you were to look at any traditional markers of authority, external measures of kingship, how much power does this person have? How many people, when they talk, listen to them? What's the scope, length, and duration and influence of their reign? What's the amount of projects that they've completed? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar completed several of the, at that time, the wonder, seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar built, uh, or sorry, Herod built uh, the temple after it was destroyed again. And then you look at things like their number of followers and their influence. You would always, always, always rank them Nebuchadnezzar number one, Herod number two, baby number three. I love the way Isaiah puts this when several hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, he prophesies about what it's going to look like. He says this, there's nothing beautiful, nothing 
majestic, nothing kingly in any way about his appearance. Talking about Jesus. There was nothing that would attract us to him. There was nothing kingly about this baby in a manger. Don't believe the art from the Middle Ages that you see with the little halo and kind of the gold robe and scepter in baby Jesus' hands. There was nothing kingly about this baby in the manger there. That is, unless you change the focal length of the lens that you're using to assess kingship with. Some of you are photography or camera buffs. And so you might actually be hoping or thinking uh, that maybe for you on your list is a new camera or a new lens for your camera for Christmas. So just a word to the wise again, if that's on your list, don't ignore the boxes that seem like they might have Lego in them. Might actually have something different in there, right? So one of the key considerations in good photography is asking the question of focus. What are you focused on when you go to take your picture. And one of the key things is if you get too closely zoomed in on a particular object, you're going to miss other things that your camera might want to take a picture of. And so one of the questions and the lessons that comes to us from our stories of these three kings is the question of what are you focused on? And the question of zoom. And the question might come to us this way. What if you change the lens that you looked at that scene with? And what if then you change the lens that you looked at your life with? If you change the lens that you looked at that manger scene with, and you zoomed out a little bit more, and you let some time elapse, and you began to ask questions again about the significance and the order, things like number of followers, things like influence in history, things like did they build anything that lasted over the course of time? Suddenly, the answers begin to shift and the ranking begins to shift. And it begins to have implications for our lives as well. And so the question for us becomes, what if we actually change the lens that we looked at our lives through? What if we changed it and ask questions beyond the next six days. I don't know about you, but sometimes we get so focused in the season of Christmas that we get so narrowed in on the day of December the 25th or the things that are going to happen immediately preceding or immediately following it that we miss out on the wonder and the peace and the joy that could be ours in the days and weeks leading up to it. Our focus is on the day sometimes, instead of on the season or on the people or possibilities for generous living. One of the very specific things that in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, one of the reasons why God says to Nebuchadnezzar, do you know why I'm judging you? He says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you have not been merciful to the poor. One of the ways to break the hold that Christmas as a season and some of the materialism might have on your life is generosity towards those who cannot repay you in any way, demonstrating mercy to those on the margins. One of the best ways to break the hold of a need for control in your life is to spend time with those who actually have no control in some ways in their lives. Whether it's uh, volunteering and some of our people work with Union Gospel Mission, whether it's the Gateway of Hope here in Langley, or you'll notice in the info sheet that our young people are going to go and participate 
in the kettle campaign as a way of trying to stir up generosity in their lives and hearts towards other people. Whether it's those who work with Mercy House or some who work vocationally as counselors or community advocates, or the list can go on and on and on. If you look beyond Christmas Day to the development of a spirit of generosity in our hearts all year long, perhaps the call that the kids extended to us in our stories this morning might be for us to change our focus or widen our focus beyond just the next six days. What if you zoom out a little bit beyond that yet again and ask a question, what would it look like and change the lens of looking at your life beyond the next six months? Some of us are like Herod in this way. We get so amped up and our lives and our priorities get so set and so focused and we're so determined to make it happen no matter what. If somebody comes into our lives and tweaks any little element of our plan whatsoever, our perfect little kingdom, doesn't matter who it is, even if it's a 22-month-old baby, we get freaked out and we will stop at nothing to get back on course. And it's, if anyone threatens our master plan, it has to be dealt with, like immediately and at all costs. We are so consumed, some of us, by running the playbook of our lives exactly as we envision it, that if there's any divine interruptions into our plan, then we just push them off to the side. We think about which school is best for us and for our kids, and we take time to make sure that it gets there. We think we know when is the right time to have kids and how many, and so we make it happen no matter what. We think we know what job to take or pursue because we have our airtight little master plan. But some of us might need to ask the question again, where's God in our planning? And what if in the next six months God totally interrupted your life and what you were planning? Would you even permit it? If not... Some of the lessons from Herod and Nebuchadnezzar might be that you might have too tight of a lock on your master plan. You might need to rethink some of that. What if you were to widen the scope of your life even a little bit further beyond the next six years? Because some of us, we might have a little lock on short-term plans pretty firmly, but some of us even are uh, better and we have a pretty good long-range plan for our lives. We have aspirations and dreams about what kind of houses we want to live in, what kind of friends we might have, what kind of vacations we might take, what kind of cars we might drive, what type of pant sizes we might want to fit into in early 2011. But what if you pulled the zoom on your life way out, beyond even like the next six years, or even the next 66 years, or even the next 600 years? What would your life look like if you began to think about it in the scope of eternity. And that's part of the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. For Nebuchadnezzar, it took him seven years of living in the fields, eating grass like a cow as a wild animal, for him to even acknowledge the fact that God is the king of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4:37. All of his acts are just and true. And he is able, Nebuchadnezzar says, to humble the proud. That's what it took for Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years of eating grass like a cow. What might it take for you to recognize and say, God, all of your ways are just and true. You are the king of heaven. You are able to humble the proud. If you take a step back from the manger scene and reflect on your life from the vantage point of eternity, the infant born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago grows larger 
and larger and larger in scope and in priority and importance until rightly understood the scriptures tell us he's the king of heaven, God himself, come to earth in human form to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. By the offering of his life, to deliver us from the control of twisted and short-sighted plans and priorities and character deficiencies that so often consume us, and to call us again to acknowledge him as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Philippians 2 says it this way, God elevated Jesus to the highest place of honor and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth or under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King to the glory of God the Father. And so part of our hope and our prayer in presenting with you these stories and songs today is that you would grow in your understanding and the implications of Christmas. And in the words of Nebuchadnezzar, you too would come to say and see, now I know from Daniel 4 that God is in control. How great are his signs, how powerful are his wonders, his kingdom will last forever. And friends, what a joy and what privilege we have to be invited to participate in it. I'm going to pray and the team's going to come and lead us in some songs of reflection and response. So let's pray together. God, we say thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to reflect on you as Lord and King. We acknowledge the fact that maybe standing that day there in Bethlehem, it might not have looked very kingly, But standing here at this vantage point, looking back and reading and understanding from your word and from the things that you said, the life that you lived, the death that you died, being raised to life again and glorified to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. The story begins to shift and the picture and the lens that we understand that with begins to shift. And we understand yet again that things aren't always as they seem. And so, God, we want to say thank you that you are Lord and King because that means that all of the challenges and problems and broken aspects of our lives can be submitted to someone who knows exactly what to do with them. Someone with authority, the Scripture says, all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, God, we come to you humbly again this morning as we prepare our hearts again for Christmas and ask that you would yet again be acknowledged as king in our hearts and in our lives. That you would yet again take that place of rulership in our hearts and in our lives. And here in our church, in our community as well as we gather. And so God, anything that pushes us away from that, we want to yet again this morning lay it down. We want to yet again say that you are the one that's in charge. And we submit our hearts and our lives to you in this place today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We say amen. Amen. The response biblically to an acknowledgement of Jesus as king is always worship. Any king that you would meet, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or Herod, 
demanded or deserved that they would receive worship from those who were their subjects. And so when we think about Jesus and we think about what he calls us to, in some ways it's very similar. He calls us to a posture and a position of worship. And so for some of you today, that might be a new reality. That might be something you haven't explored in a full way. And Dave and our prayer team will be available for you at the sides. And if you want to spend some time talking with them and asking questions of what it is that we've been talking about here today and things that you've heard presented, then I just invite you as we sing to make your way over there and uh, have a conversation with them and spend time in prayer. You might have something going on in your family or in your life or in your extended circle that you may want to invite them to pray for with you. And they're trained to do that in a confidential way and a way that will uh, bring you great comfort and assistance. And so I just invite you to make your way over there while we sing and they'll spend time with you in that category. You may have something you want to celebrate with someone else and share them with them uh, this morning. And so Dave and the team will be available for you uh, over on the far side over there and as well the pastoral team will be available for you at the back if you want to talk to somebody as we sing uh, and lead in worship. And so Mike and the team will lead us in these songs of response.